Revelation chapter 1, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, and those which are, and those which have yet to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear God, grant to us again that we would hear and understand, respond favorably to your word. Speak powerfully to us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Please be seated. As always, I encourage you to have your Bibles in front of you. That will certainly be important as we work through our passage today here together. So we have John finally meeting up with Jesus after 40, 50, 60 years of separation. John finally meets with Jesus. Now John has been exiled. John's an old, old man at this point in the game. Uh, certainly by uh, Roman uh, Empire standards, he's an elderly man. And he has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, the island of Patmos is a small island. It could have been, at that point, only about two or three miles, square miles uh, total in size. So it's a smaller island uh, right off of the coast of Turkey. And John has been exiled there, he says here, because of the witness, the testimony of Jesus Christ, because of the word of God. So evidently, he has been preaching, proclaiming the word of God. And we know that at different times during the Roman Empire, there have been persecution of Christians. And one of the ways in which Christians were persecuted was banished. And being banished to this small island is what probably happened here to John. John is banished to a small island of Patmos. And while he is there on the Lord's Day, so it's a Sunday morning, he's in the spirit. I think what we have here is a picture of worship. So in the middle of his worship, he hears this great loud voice. It's a voice like a trumpet, it says, that says, write these things to the seven churches and send them to the seven churches. And so John, naturally enough, in verse 12, John, naturally enough, turns to hear the voice. He says, hey, who's speaking to me? He turns, and what does he see? Now, to me, this is semi-remarkable because of the way I set it up. I hope you see that. This is his best friend. 
This is his Lord and Savior. This is the man that he has suffered and died for. This is the man that he has given all of his life for, and he turns after 40 or more years of not seeing him and sees him standing there, and this is what we are told. He turns and saw in the midst of the lampstands, in verse 13, one like a son of man. He turns and sees somebody that looks like a son of man. Now, it would be tempting for us to think that what that is is some weird way of describing a human being, that he turns and sees some kind of a humanoid figure that is standing there, one like the son of man, and he's standing there like that, and John says, oh, look, uh, there's somebody standing there like a son of man. But that misses the important background of that phrase, one like a son of man. John's audience would certainly recognize this and identify it with the Daniel 7 passage where you have the one like the Son of Man who is riding on the clouds into the very throne room of God himself and who is exhibiting every ounce of divine power. That is a nickname, that is a phrase that would have been familiar to everyone who read the Old Testament, everyone who would have been known, known John's apocalypse, John's revelation here, would have recognized that that phrase would have identified not a human figure, but a divine figure. That's a phrase that says a divine figure. So what John does is when he turns and he looks, the first thing that he identifies is that he is standing in the presence of the divine. He turns and sees one who looks like the son, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe. I checked this to make sure that it's still the case, and it is. Uh, you guys will, if you're ever walking around the hospitals or something like that, you will recognize that there are different lengths of, of robes that the doctors will wear. Uh, they, wear, they actually, you know, the medical students actually will have a shorter robe, the residents a certain, a longer coat, uh, then there's a longer coat than that, and finally the full doctors will have a very long coat. And it's a status symbol, it's a way of identifying uh, where somebody has come in the medical community, uh, if they are a student, they have a shorter coat, if they have a longer coat, they're a full doctor. It's a, it's a status symbol along those lines. And it's the same here for John as he looks at this divine being who's standing there and he's dressed in this long robe. It is not just a short robe, it is a long robe. As a matter of fact, when you get to Isaiah 6, and Isaiah has a vision of the throne room, what does he say? He sees up in the heavens God himself and the robe, the, the train of his robe filled the temple it's not just that there's a little bit of a robe here. It's not just that he's sort of holy. It is the robe that fills the entire temple and flows out into everything. So what John sees when he turns and looks, he sees the divine being who is the king, but not just the king, because this robe is a long robe. This robe fills the temple. He looks and he sees the king of kings turns and he saw one who looks like a son of man clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Now, not a lot of us wear sashes, and if you know what it is, I apologize, I'm going to explain it for a second. A sash is one of those things that you would wear if you were a beauty queen or a, a, um, 
uh, Boy Scout or something like that. It's that, that linen thing that goes around the body across that. It's a decoration, something, again, that makes you stand out in certain status. Only one group of people wore a sash in the Old Testament, and that was the priests. And the country priests would wear a cotton sash. It would be made out of cotton across the board. And the priests that would serve in the temple area would wear a, a sash that had uh, gold and, uh, I'm sorry, would have scarlet and um, blue fibers woven through it. Uh, and it would be made of fine linen. But the high priest, the, the one identified that would hold the privilege of being the high priest for the year, that man would wear a pure silver sash out of linen, a linen silver woven sash. And the silver would identify him as the high priest of all things. Nowhere in the Old Testament, anywhere, does anyone ever wear a golden sash. You go from a copper, uh, a, uh, you go from a cotton sash to a linen scarlet sash, then to a pure linen sash, and then to a silver sash to identify the rank, the priority, the import of the priest. And here, what do we have? We have the Son of Man, the divine being, clothed in a long robe. He is the King of Kings, and he has a golden sash around his chest. Not only is he the king of kings, but he is the priest of priests. What does a priest do? A priest's function is to connect us to our Lord. A, a priest's function is to stand between the two and connect the two together and to identify us together. And this is the Lord's role, our King Jesus' role, the high priest, the priest of priests, as he stands beside the Father's throne and intercedes on our behalf. He is functioning as the, high, the highest of priests, the priests with a golden sash. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now, what is white hair? White hair is not a necessarily a hairstyle or a color of hair that you put on. White hair is to identify what? in the Old Testament, in scriptures as a whole, in ancient times, in today's language, it identifies that you're getting old. Um, I used to have dark hair, uh, and I had dark hair before I came to Hebron. No, that's not true. Um, uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, but I'm starting to turn, but I'm not turning white yet. I'm turning gray first, okay? So first you go gray, and then as I'm looking out here, I'm seeing a couple of you, I'm not really looking at you, uh, that, 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 are, uh, that it's getting more and more white. Well, what is this? This is white like wool, like white wool, white like snow. Uh, John is trying desperately to describe the, the whiteness of Jesus' hair because he wants to say as he turns to see Jesus standing there that this is the king of kings, this is the priest of priests, and this guy is so old. But it's not really the oldness that John is identifying. The, the white hair is identified as such a, a marker of somebody who is old because that person has become wise. 
That person now has become wise. That's what age is associated with in the Scriptures. Becoming old is getting white hair. It's becoming wise. And so here we have the King of Kings, who is the priest of priests, who is the wise of all the, the wisest of all the wise. Now when we talk about the wisdom of the Lord, I want you to realize something. Wisdom is not intelligence. This is not an assertion assertion that Jesus is the most intelligent being. He is. But that's not what's being promoted here. What's being promoted here is the understanding that in Jesus, you've got the one who really is wise, wisdom, living faithfully and godly in his world. How do we live faithfully and godlike in God's world? That is wisdom. And here we have the one who's proclaiming himself to be the wisest of the wise. If you are wondering how to live your life, you will never go wrong living according to the wisdom of Jesus Christ. He is the wisest of the wise. And his eyes were like the flame of fire. His eyes were like the flame of fire at the end of verse 20, at the end of verse 14. My mother had those eyes. Uh, Growing up, my mother could give you that flame of fire, eyes, look in her eyes all the time, and they were right there. I never got away with anything because my mother had eyes that were flames of fire. Now, what do we mean by that? She knew. My mother knew she had insight She could see what was going on. She had discernment. Nothing passed her sight for ill or for good. Jesus has eyes of flaming fire. We're not talking here, you know, laser beams or something superhero-ish. What we're saying is that Jesus has insight. He has awareness of what's going on, and he brings conviction into our lives with eyes that are flaming of fire. He has feet, verse 15, that are burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. What does that mean? He has feet that are burnished bronze. I don't know, so we're going to skip that one. Uh, I I mean, I I would assume that has something to do with his stability or his dependability or something. I don't know. Okay. Uh, And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Where is John now as he's writing this? He's on this island of Patmos, this small little island. And while he is there on this island, what can he never, ever get away from? The sound of the rushing waters. The waters are pounding on the surface of the island of Patmos, and there is no way that John can ever avoid hearing the constant speaking of the Word of God as God is directing, guiding, and leading us in all things. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Now, in his right hand, it doesn't say that in his hands he's holding the seven stars. It specifies that he held it in his right hand. What's the right hand? Um, We use the terminology here today, you know, you're my right-hand man. Uh, 
and he's, he's on my right hand, and he's a right-hand fellow, and stuff like that. What we're talking about is that we're identifying the person who is blessed, the person who is dependable, the, the person that you can count on, the person that can, the right hand is the hand of blessing. It's the hand of, uh, of holding that which you care the most about. And Jesus here is holding the seven stars, a little bit later in this passage, we find out that the seven stars are the spirits of the churches, that Jesus is holding in his blessed hand the churches themselves. He has in his hand the churches and the community of the churches, and they are at his right hand, the spot of blessing, the spot of favor and of goodness. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. By the way, if you ever try to picture this, or if you go on the internet and you look up a Google search for uh, Jesus as he appears in Revelation chapter one, it's hard to picture. First off, you've got a face that's shining in all its brilliance, you've got all his white hair, you've got a sword coming out of somebody's mouth, and usually the pictures that you see are fairly grotesque. It's because John's trying to capture the reality of who Jesus is. And when he sees the sword coming out, the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, we are told in Hebrews that that is the word of God itself. And the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword because it pierces our soul and it brings healing. It is like a surgeon's knife that both dissects and brings conviction and brings peace and love and patience. That's the two-edged sword, the word of God that is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And his face was shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. Jesus' face is shining with all of its brilliance. Now, the light is consistently identified in the scriptures as the glory of God, of his majesty, of his greatness. And so it hears John is saying, as he's looking at Jesus, he's saying, I'm seeing the king of kings, the priest of priests, the wisest of wise. I'm seeing the one who can see all things, the one who knows everything, and he is the one is shining in all of his brilliance. It is an overwhelming view of who Jesus is. And John, for the first time, seeing his good friend, who he has missed and lived his life for, for 40 years, how does he respond runs into the arms of Jesus and says, man, where have you been for the last 40 years? I, I have missed you so much. Thank you, Jesus, for coming back to me. Nope. Verse 14. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why? Because this is a revelation of Jesus Christ that has taken place after the ascension. Most of what we read about Jesus Christ takes place before the ascension, while Jesus is in his humble state, living here upon this earth, teaching, nurturing, loving his disciples. But when he goes to heaven, he is once again the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the priest of priests, the sovereign one over all things, the divine one 
And John sees that, and he doesn't think of my good friend who I'm missing for 40 years. He sees the Holy One of God. And he does what every one of us would do. He falls at his face. He falls as though dead, and well he should be. But then listen what Jesus does. But Jesus laid his right hand upon me. Now remember what hand he's holding the stars? At the same time that he's holding the community of God's people with that same hand of blessingness that we bless the whole people of God, the church as a whole, that same hand, the hand of goodness, of favor, of grace, that's what he lays upon John and says those blessed words, do not be afraid. Fear not, John, because you're not that bad. Fear not, John, you don't have to worry about me, I'm okay. Fear not, John, everything will work out. He doesn't say any of that. He says, fear not, John. Why? Because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. Fear not, John. Why? Because with that same hand that I hold all of the churches in my grasp, that same gracious, loving hand, I have laid upon you, and I have died for you I have been raised again for you. Therefore, you need not fear. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ that we will confront every week as we look through the book of Revelation. I will reiterate something that I have said before. I pray that you will take seriously the challenge to read out loud the book of Revelation, to your family, to yourself. Read that book of Revelation for next week. Read chapter 7 out loud. We have it in the bulletins for you. Because what we're going to see over and over again, the revelation of Jesus Christ means that we can be encouraged because God is in control. We can be encouraged because the future is safe in his hands. And we can be encouraged because he has already won the victory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for blessing us once again with your word, with the power of your scripture, with the direction and guidance and leadership that it provides to us. Lord, you are the king of kings. You are the priest of priests. You are the holy one, the righteous one. We give you great thanks and praise, and we rejoice that you reach out to us with the hand of favor and say to us, do not be afraid, I am the living one. And because, Lord, you are, so too will we, now and forevermore. Amen.